Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Jump in, get going tonight. One of my favorite chapters. This one's pretty awesome. And uh, it'll fly by fast. And it is... Uh, Got so many cool little twists and turns as we jump into 1 Samuel 17, uh, getting into the story of David and Goliath, uh, knowing that we always kind of start off with just just a little bit of a question, and again, don't want it to be dark, don't want it to be bad, don't want it to get you in trouble, uh, but I'm curious if in your life you have either ever picked a fight or someone has picked a fight with you, okay? There's a question. Cannot be a spouse. We'll just start with that right now. Cannot be a spouse. Have you ever picked a fight, or has anybody ever picked a fight with you? Talk about that with each other. Tell a story. Maybe you're sitting with somebody you're, you know, married to. That'll be. I've never heard this story. Uh, and then we'll, uh, we'll kind of, we'll tell the stories. All right. Go ahead and talk about that. <laughs> Trying to think. We, if you're listening to the podcast, we just heard a great story that we won't tell who it was on. Uh, Punch Sonny got kicked out of school for three days, so that's a good one. Uh, mine is, I've got a scar on my leg right here to this day. Uh, when I was like, I don't know what grade I was in, probably like fifth to sixth grade, hanging out, uh, a guy named Mitch was, you know, my best friend. He had a big brother named Mike, and we always like, picked at Mike, messed with Mike like junior high kids do. Uh, and I remember one day, I messed with him one time too many. And he let out this blood curling scream yell at me begin turn red begin shaking and charged at me and I took off running because this guy was going to kill me man and it was all me it wasn't me it was not Mike was a nice guy I was just an ornery should have shut my mouth little kid didn't shut my mouth he took off running at me and was chasing me they lived out in the country not too far from here chasing me all over and I was barely staying ahead of him, but I was quick enough, and he was a high school kid, that I could cut left or right and you know, dip and dodge and all that. And so he never really could quite catch me. And then all of a sudden, I saw this fence ahead of me, and I thought, i got to get over that fence. And for some reason in my mind, I thought, I can clear it. I can clear the barbed wire fence. And I jumped as high as I could, got over. Like, they didn't have all the strands, but I got high enough. I cleared like hurdles with one leg. And then my back leg caught on the barbed wire, ripped all the way down, blood coming everywhere. And I start screaming, blood flowing. And then all my, Mike still says, I'm going to kill you! And then I have to keep on running. That's all I remember. I just kept on running. I was like, I didn't even have time to bleed. It was so bad. And uh, I don't remember what happened. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I can remember my, uh, my favorite fight that I ever got in the last... Yeah, the last fight, I guess it would be, other than when I was trying to learn jiu-jitsu and get my rear kicked doing that. Uh, my last fight was with my brother, and I was probably about 22, 23 years old. And Mark, uh, I don't think you guys, if you're a big brother, shame on you. Uh, my big brother's cruel. And I just remember this, uh, talk about picking a fight. Every day for school, Mark beat me up. It was a ritual, every day. I'd get off the bus. He would drive his car home, would not give me a ride, would make me ride the bus. Yeah, because he didn't want to be seen with me. I would get off the bus, you know, an hour plus after he got home, I'd walk in the door and I got beat up. That's the way it worked. Every single day. Every day. Not some days, every day. 
I walk in the door, let the beatings commence. And I knew at some point, I just like, all right, I got 20 minutes getting beat up, and then I can watch cartoons. It was kind of like, let's just get this over with, just beat the thunder out of me. And uh, he would. he just pound on me. So, I, you know, when I graduated high school, I was probably about, you know, five foot nine, I think. I was just starting to grow about maybe five nine, five ten. I weighed about a buck twenty. It's tiny. And so now I'm six two and don't even want to admit that I'm what I weigh right now. I'm trying to drop 25 pounds, but um, over 200. We'll just leave it at that. But anyway, when I came back after graduating, I didn't see him a whole lot through college. And then I moved to California and I came back. And all I remember was Mark and I out of the garden. And we're walking along and he just shoves me. I'm like, don't do that. I'm like, at this time, I'm 6'2". I'm still not very big. I probably now weigh like a buck 60 or something like that. But he just shoves me, and I'm like, don't do that to me. And he goes, what? You know, what are you going to do? And then he starts calling me the nickname that I will not admit here publicly because it still makes me mad. He starts saying the nickname like, dude, don't do this. And then he grabs a hold of me, and all I remember is I took a hold of him, took him down to the ground as hard as I could, ran my forearm across his mouth, shoved his head down into the ground. He'd had a car wreck, so he had braces because his car hit the the steering wheel. All of a sudden, he got up, stood up, looked at me, smiled, blood all in his brace. He goes, all right, we're good. That was it. That was a great fight. My My last good fight I ever got, it was like, it was awesome. I just, for me, that moment of seeing him smile with just nothing but blood in those braces was like, that was a good day. Um, Tonight, we're going to look at David, and uh, I love, 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 love this story. I promise I'm going to get wound up a couple of times, um, but I do want to just unpack the text, because it's just a great story, and, and we've all, at some point, you know, you've, you've heard the story of David and Goliath. It's, it's probably, especially right now, heading into March Madness, we're going to hear that, that motif and that metaphor more than we ever want to hear it, uh, with every underdog team playing, you know, that's got to play Kentucky or Virginia, whoever it is. Uh, Kansas, I mean, not Kentucky. Uh, whoever's playing Kansas, Virginia, all you're going to hear about, underdog, underdog, it's David and Goliath. And, uh, and it's just, it's, it's one of, it's got to be up there, it's one of the most popular stories in all Scripture. So let's just dive into it, let's walk through it. And, uh, and there's a lot of things I want to pull out of here uh, that I think are pretty cool. There'll be some things that you guys see. Uh, but yeah, here we go. It says that the Philistines gathered their forces at war and assembled in Succoth and Judah. All right, let's just stop there. I know I usually only get three words out and I go, let's stop there. All right, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. Uh, if you were a good Hebrew and you read that, you'd be like, what? Uh, it, would, it would literally make you just slam on the, the proverbial brakes. Uh, how many of you guys have ever seen, great, great, great movie. Come on now. Anybody ever seen, you know, Red Dawn? The original Red Dawn? Okay, Wolverine? Come on. You've seen that? You know the moment when the Russians, you know, they parachute in and they land... You know, right there. Is it Colorado's where they're at in Red Dawn? Or is it, is it New Mexico? I know it's filmed in New Mexico. But yeah, it's Colorado's where they say it is. It's actually, they filmed it all up in New Mexico. But they land in Colorado. And the whole premise of the movie is like, what, man? They're in the interior of the United States. You know, all that kind of stuff. This is the equivalent of that. When it says that they're in Succoth and Judah, it means they're right in the heart of Israel. I mean, this is like, man... How did they get here? You were supposed to run them out. You were supposed to get rid of them. I mean, you, 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 you know, the story, Samson pushes apart the pillars. They collapse on top of them. I mean, these guys should be just run, run out of all of Israel's territory. And now they're in Judah, they're right in the heart of it. And so what it's basically trying to say is, Philistines are, man, they're, they're, right, they're right in the middle of it all. I mean, they're, they're right smack dab in the middle of this stuff. And it's a, it's a bad mess. He goes, uh, they pitched camp. 
at Ephraim's Damien, uh, between Succah and Azgah. We'll talk about that later on. We'll get to some of that stuff later on. Saul and the Israelites assembly, assembled and camped in the Valley of Elah. That Valley of Elah is interesting because that's Samson's home. That's, I wouldn't say it's not his hometown, but that's where Samson ran. That's his, his stomping grounds. So the judge that was supposed to get rid of him, they've set up in his home territory. And, uh, and they're, they're hanging out right there. And so why all these cities don't make sense to us, you know, you got to go back a little bit to Red Dawn, and you think about they're in Denver, okay? They're in Boulder, you know, they're in Wichita. Th- that literally, where they're setting up all of these areas, the Israelites reading this later on and be like, whoa, are you kidding me? They had those towns at one point in time? They're in that area? And, and anybody reading this would be like, wait, 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 they're, the Philistines are setting up camp where, like where Samson was judge? It's kind of a, a shocking thing. It goes on, it says, uh, the Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with a valley between them. Sounds a little bit like that, that battle that Jonathan got into just a little bit. So you've got this big ravine, big valley between them. Israelites on one hill, Philistines on the other. Okay, uh, and, and they're just, they're, they're camped out there for a good period of time. We'll get to that in a second. A champion named Goliath, uh, he was from Gath. Um, Goliath is, uh, there's another... Uh, uh, giant named Goliath. It's mentioned later on in text. He's not the only Goliath that's, that's massive in Scripture. There's another one that mentions that. Um, in fact, if you get your Bibles, let's just find it. Uh, look at 2 Samuel 21, 19. Somebody find that real quick and read it. And somebody look at 1 Chronicles. Somebody get that one. Somebody read it out loud, if you don't mind. Anybody got that one? Second Samuel 21, 19. Yeah. Uh, Bethlehemite killed the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, who had a spear with a shaft like a weaver's rod. Yeah. You can also look at First Chronicles chapter twenty, verse five. Um, there, there probably was even another Goliath. We know that Goliath had uh, like four or five brothers. We know that he's massive. We'll get to that here in a little bit, a bit more about him. He says he's from Gath, and Gath is going to be an important city. Remember. Later on, we talk about David, file that away, circle it, do something, remember the name Gath. And you'll know like, oh yeah, Goliath, that's his hometown. Okay, moving on. It says he was over nine feet tall. Uh, There's a couple of ways to interpret that. Uh, Either, some people say nine feet, nine inches based on the cubits and all that. Some people say six foot nine. It's probably nine foot nine is what I tend to hold to. I mean, he's literally... He is, the, at that point, the world, world's tallest man. He's massive, massive, massive man. It goes on, it says, uh, he had a bronze helmet <clears throat> on his head. He wore a coat of scale armor. What the writer's about to do, nobody else really in the Old Testament gets a description like this. Uh, and really, it just says he, has, he had an armor of scales, is the way that the Hebrew would have written at it. It makes, it makes him sound like he's a snake. You know, the way that it describes him, like he's just this giant, giant python of a man. And he's covered in these scales that are all over him. Um, he says, weighing 5,000 shekels. That's a ton. 5,000 shekels is about 125 pounds. That's a lot of weight, man. It's a lot of weight in armor. He goes on and he says, uh, he says, on his legs were bronze greaves. A bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear was like that of a weaver's rod, uh, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. 
basically just the tip of that spear weighed 15 pounds. So can you imagine this guy going to battle? He's holding a weaver's rod. This is this big old rod because his hands wrap around it. At the end of that, that spearhead weighs 15 pounds. You can imagine the tip of 15 pounds. Of br- I mean, I, I don't even want to imagine the, the, the per pound force on the tip of that spear going into you, what that would do. I mean, just utter annihilation when that spear hits you. You know, big old rod. I don't know how much of the entire thing weighs, but basically every time he chunks that javelin, he, it's almost like he's just tossing a slingshot. <laughs> And the tip of that is just driving to your chest. And so it, it would have just annihilated armor of that day. I mean, it just would have annihilated it. You can't imagine trying to pick up not just a, a 15-pound shot put, but then trying to add this massive weaver's rod on the end of it and trying to throw that thing. His strength would have been immense. goes on. Uh, says, Goliath stood and shouted at the ranks of Israel. Said, stood and shouted at the ranks of Israel. He says, why do you come in line for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Interesting what they choose there. Servants of Saul. He says, choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, uh, we will become your subordinates. If I overcome him and kill him, uh, you will become our, our subjects and serve us. Philistine said, this day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. And on hearing the Philistine's words, Saul and all the Israelites we're terrified. We're dismayed and terrified. Um, it's a big deal, man. I mean, here you've got the tallest man in Israel. What we know right then is who? Saul. We find that from when, when uh, David goes to approach him. Tallest man in Israel. Tallest man in Israel. And day after day, he walks out and just talks smack. Cannot imagine what that felt like for Saul, honestly. I mean, Saul's got to be humiliated. I'm sure all the soldiers are looking at him. You know, dude, you're our biggest guy. You know, it's kind of like basketball. We're going to match up, you know, our center against your center right now. And our center's afraid. <laughs> he's going to get dominated. You know, only, so, only a whole lot more. You know, Saul at this point, he's getting some experience in battle. But the last time we know, he was hiding out underneath that pomegranate tree and his, his son went to go fight the battle. I think Saul's just peeing his pants right now. I think Saul's just like, dude, <laughs> he wants to fight him. And at that point, they're all looking at Saul. And Saul's like, uh, I don't want any part of that. You want him? You go fight him. I mean, Saul could have commanded anyone, but if they lose, they lose everything. I mean, this is just a taunt that, I mean, you're getting called out. You know what you're going to do? What, what are you going to do? You can't fight the guy. You're going to get annihilated. And so every day they're looking at him going, who's the toughest guy we've got? Uh, doesn't matter. Toughest guy we've got can't take that guy. And if you can't take that guy, we lose everything. I mean, this is incredibly tense for them. Incredibly tense. Um, it's that fear, and, and man, I'm ladies, I'm sure you felt this. Uh, you know, guys, whether it be in athletics, when you've got to block somebody or stop somebody, and you just know you can't. Can't do it, man. They're a specimen of a human being, and you think you're all that. You know, or maybe even now, whenever you're looking at it going, you know, wow, if, if I had to stop an individual like that with just my bare hands, I don't know that I could. I don't know that I could. Uh, I had a chance to go, my boys started doing, well, I had this thing. My boys, I wanted them to kind of be able to defend themselves. So when they were younger, I thought, you know what? I didn't even know we had like a wrestling club around here. I had no idea. 
and I was driving over there by the water tower. Back in the day, I saw this thing called the Fight Shop. And uh, I didn't even know it. I went to high school, ran that, and he's moved on to Tulsa now. But I thought, you know what? I'm going to take my boys in there. I had no idea what it was. No idea. I just want my boys to learn, like, you know, some basic, you know, I could teach them a little bit how to box, but I don't know a ton. I could teach them, like, how to handle themselves. I thought, you know, it's part of, I just felt like part of being a dad, I want my boys to build a, build a handle themselves, be in the situation, be able to defend themselves. So I thought, you know what? Take them in there. I'm going to let them learn a couple things. You know, I just want them to learn some basics of, you know, what to do that if you get in a tough situation. I didn't do much grappling. Uh, fun story. My, my uh, I don't have time for this tangent. Oh, it's a funny story, though. My, my, uh, my grand journey into wrestling lasted one tournament. Have I told you guys this story? Oh, gosh, it's funny. I used to hang out with these boys, and they were, when I was younger, they were all ate up with wrestling. And so I'd go to their house every day after school. They were part of a wrestling club back then, and I would go there. we just, they would teach me moves. And finally, after like months and months and months of hanging out with these kids, they wrestled all the time. It's just what these boys did. And I started learning a few things. And I still remember their dad one time saying, hey, you're starting to figure that out. Why don't you come to practice? I went to practice and wrestled a little bit. I was like, hey, it's kind of fun. I kind of like this. And then finally he said, hey, do you want to go to a tournament? And, uh, you know, I asked my parents, and they're like, oh, you don't need to go to a tournament. You know, we're going to spend all that money, and I really wanted to go. And they're like, well, we're not buying those wrestling shoes. You know, we're not going to spend stupid money on all that singlet junk. And I was like, well, can I go anyway? I don't care. You can go, you know. And at that point, we were were pretty poor, so they weren't going to spend money on all that junk for this tournament. And so... (laughs) The guy picked me up with all his boys in there at like 5.45 in the morning or something. We drove to Kansas for this wrestling tournament. And I remember I was probably, I had to be like second or third grade. And uh, I remember the night before, it was like, I don't have a singlet. I don't have anything to wear. So I put on, I remember like it was yesterday. This is like 70s. So I put on my, my green, you know, basically terry cloth short gym shorts that we all wore in the 70s. I put on my white t-shirt, safety pin my shirt, you know, to my shorts so it doesn't come up, my belly doesn't show. And I go to this wrestling tournament. I had no idea, man. I'd never been to one. And I show up there and I start wrestling and this kid I'm wrestling pinches me on the side as hard as he can. And it hurts so bad. Well, I had two big brothers. I punched him. I just went, boom! Referee blows, you can't do that? The dad's like, hey, you can't do that. Tells the ref, listen, this is his first day, first time ever. You know, appeals to the ref, please. He gets in my face. Hey, you can't do that. He pinched me. It doesn't matter. You can't punch. You know, this is wrestling. What are you doing? I'm sorry. You know, and I get back out there. My referee's like, all right, do not do that again. Reads me the right act. I get down, start wrestling, and he pinches me again. Same spot. Holds off. Pinches me so stinking hard. I react. Bam! I punch him again. I just punch him. Rep blows a whistle. I'm kicked out. I still remember this dad yelling at me. And I remember going back to this, we were this, I don't know, where we were some little, like, town in Kansas, you know. I remember going back in the little locker room. Nobody back there with me. And I remember just crying and crying and crying. I'm all mad. I'll beat the kid up. And I pull up my shirt. Look where he pinched me. And I'm bleeding in two spots. I'm bleeding. My safety pin had come and done. And it stabbed me twice in the side. <laughs> Kid never pinched me once, man. He never touched me. Oh, man. So, I didn't know a whole lot about wrestling, but I wanted my boys to learn stuff. So I decided I'd take them to this fight shop. And, uh, and I started going and uh, started just watching my boys. They're learning. And then finally, I didn't realize that this was like an MMA-type shop. Like, they were training fighters. 
I thought it was just like some little, I don't know, what do you call those little places you go to to learn some martial art? What do they call it? Dojo, whatever you call it? Yeah, it was one of those. So I'd go in there and I'd sit. You know, my boys would take an hour of boxing. They'd take an hour of grappling. And finally this guy looked at me and he goes, you just going to sit there? Or are you going to join us? I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. He goes, well, come on down here. Come down here and join us. I was like, I, I don't know what I'm doing. He's like, well, you can either sit there and watch this every week or you can jump in there. And that's when I realized, wow, the being overwhelmed by strength that you cannot stop no matter how bad you want to as a man is beyond humbling. Like I, I had this guy, he, he was our teacher, and it didn't matter what I did. I couldn't stop him. I mean, he'd feel like he was going to rip my head off my shoulders. Couldn't stop him. Big old, big old guy named Brew, and he just worked me over. And I would try with everything in my power to stop this guy. Nothing I could do. And you realize this utter point of humility when somebody absolutely owns you and you can't stop it. And I'm looking at, they're looking at Goliath right now going, we can't stop it, man. Can't stop this guy. He's a champion for crying out loud. He's probably earned the title. He's earned the title. And they're looking at this going, listen, man, I don't mind. Like, I'll, I'll give my life, but it's not just my life. If I lose this guy, we're all subject to him. So it's not just, there's not, there's just not a man brave enough. There's not a man that feels like they can pull it off. Do you make, does that make sense? And if they don't pull it off, they lose it all. It's complicated. And so they're just sitting there, and they're terrified and dismayed because nobody can fight this guy. Let's move on. Too much on that. It says, uh, David was a son of an Ephraimite named Jesse, uh, who's from Bethlehem in Judah. We already know that. Jesse had eight sons. Um, and in Saul's time, he was old and well-advanced in years. And Jesse's oldest sons had followed Saul to war. Uh, he goes through his, his kids. He says, three oldest followed Saul, verse 10. But David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Um, David knows Saul. We learned that last week. If you look, just look back at uh, one chapter, 16 verse 21. says, David came uh, to Saul and entered his service. Saul knows who David is. David's in and out. He's playing guitar for Saul. We read all about that. We talked about all that last week. And David's got this job where uh, he, he's just kind of going back and forth, back and forth. But now Saul's been drawn you know, out of the homeland you know, out of Gibeah, out of that region, and now he's been forced to this hillside to battle. And so I don't know how long it's been since David's seen him. We know it's not been more than 40 days, because we're going to get that here in a second. But he's around him. And so David's job is, and I wonder what David, how David feels about it. You know, we know that David is, is athletic. We know he's ruddy and handsome. We know that he's killed a lion and killed a bear. And here he is going, dude, I, I can do this, man. I can fight. And yet all the boys get to go to war and the youngest David. Somebody's got to take care of the sheep. And so David gets the, you know, the crap job that nobody wants. All the boys get to go to war. Now you can look at it differently. You know, the other boys are like, man, I'd, I'd gladly trade you places. You know, but of course, if you're David, you're like, oh, I want to be out there. I want to be on the front lines. And so the tension's there in the family uh, because the brothers are looking at him like, yeah, look at you, little boy. Yeah, you just go take care of the sheep, little guy. Just go take care of the sheep. We'll do the big boy stuff. You'll feel the tension coming out here in a second. For 40 days, the Philistine came forth and every morning and evening took his stand. Can't imagine what that felt like. 40 days. Walks out in the morning, calls out your manhood, calls out your entire army. Goes back, walks back out in the evening. Let's go. Anybody going to fight? 40 days. 80 times he stood up and did this. That, that 40 days is a really, it's a big deal. 
whether or not that is, I'm assuming that that's probably 40 literal days, um, but the, the number 40 represents an, a, a period of testing in the Bible. Okay? Because remember, Jesus tested for, for 40 days. You know, the Israelites got 40 years of testing in the wilderness. That 40 is a big deal. It's a testing period. And so whether that's a literal 40 days, I think it probably is. God uses that 40-day period several times in the Scriptures to make His point. For 40 days, they get tested. You going to come fight or not? It says, uh, Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread uh, for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Um, how much of the ephah grain? I can't remember. Where is that? Uh, i got to find that down here. Oh, where is that? How much do you think... Let's figure this out. Just for kicks, we're here right now. It's three-fifths of a bushel. Somebody Google how much does a bushel of grain weigh. We're going to figure this out. I didn't have time to figure it out before we came in. Somebody ask Siri, put it into your phone. And then somebody else calculate this. If you were to guess, uh, we'll say it's it's unleavened bread. If you were in a ballpark, how much a loaf... Somebody try to figure out what, how much a loaf of unleavened bread would weigh. Just curious. I think this is interesting. One bushel is 60 pounds, so three-fifths of 60. Okay? I'm going to look at what else we have in here. Um, what do we got? How, do you think, how much do you think a loaf of bread, unlo- unleavened bread weighs? Ballpark. What, do you, what, would you, what would you feel good about? Two pounds? Anybody think it's, is that too high, too low, about right? Guessing? Okay. How much was the grain? We get the weight on the grain. Anybody calculate that? Huh? 36 pounds. Okay, so we got 36 pounds of grain. And understand, he's taking it. Back then, you don't, you don't, if you want to provide food for the army, it's not like it is today. Families would run the food out there. And usually they provide a little bit extra for the king, for the other people working, for the officers. So he's taking 36 pounds of grain and let's say 10 loaves of bread. We'll go two, two pounds of loaf. Now he's got you know another 20 pounds of bread, right? So he's at 56 pounds. Let's say he's got, a, I think there's cheese in there as well, he talks about later on. Yeah, takes 10 cheeses to the commander. How much do you want to let those cheese weigh? How much is each cheese going to weigh? 10 pounds each? It might be a Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking it's like this. Yeah, I don't know, maybe we go 2 pounds each again? Okay, so another 20 pounds in cheese? Sound alright? So now what, we got 76 pounds? Is that about where we're at now? Ish? Okay, we'll just round it, to 70, round it down to 75 pounds. And we don't know exactly. We're ballparking it. Boy knows there's quite a bit. So when he asked David to say, hey, take 10 loaves of bread and three-fifths of bushel of grain, roasted grain, and hey, on top of that, and the grain might have been a little bit lighter because it was roasted, would have cooked out some humidity. That makes it a little bit lighter. Um, takes all this cheese. Even, let's just round it down to 70 pounds. Let's just take it down to 70 pounds. 70 pounds is what he's got in all of this stuff that he's hauling. Okay? 70 pounds of stuff. It says, uh, take these cheesy commander unit uh, and see your brothers are doing and bring back some reassurance. Uh, there was Saul and all the men of the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock with a shepherd, uh, loaded up, and set out. I don't know exactly how he did this. We know he's going to carry, carry a ton, cover a ton of territory. You know, we know at one point, Jesse does refer to having a donkey one time. We don't know if that donkey's dead or not. We don't even know if it's around. 
I'm going to say for this matter of principle, David's probably loaded up 70 pounds and he's hoofing it. The distance that David's going to cover. Okay, he sets off early in the morning. We know that Goliath comes out. When does Goliath come out? Okay, morning and night. I want you to run through the math in your head real quick. Anybody here a runner? Anybody run? None of us. Okay, if we did run. Okay, here we go. It's like, no. Anybody here like me? You hate running. I don't like it. Let's think about this. Let's say that Goliath comes out every morning, and let's say that Goliath is a bit lazy, so he likes to have, he knows no one's going to fight him. So he eats his breakfast, has his cup of coffee, you know, gets all of his stuff ready, has to put on all of his armor. What time is Goliath, you know, by the time he, you know, they're going to get up early, you know, it's sunrise, they're waking up in the tents. You know, by the time Goliath gets up, has his morning coffee, you know, reads the newspaper, eats his breakfast, then he's got to put on, you know, the bronze helmet, put on all the 125 pounds of scale armor that goes on him, grab the javelin, get all the stuff, walk out, you know, stand there on the edge. What time of day do you, just guesstimate, what time of day do you want to make it? 10 a.m.? Okay. Isaac, at 9 a.m.? We'll go 9.30. It's 9.30 in the morning is, is what I'm guesstimating. David covers, from some point it says early in the morning, he can't run or move when it's just flat dark outside. You know, or maybe he can just move in the dark. He might be able to. But he's going to cover 15 miles with 70 pounds and get there in time to hear Goliath talk smack. All I want to pull, pull out of that point is we need to understand that David is a phenomenal athlete. He's a specimen of, of a man. In terms of his sheer athletic ability, he's covered 15 miles with 70 pounds and got there in time to hear Goliath walk out and talk smack. That's impressive. Uh, and, and just like, whew, okay. Running 15 miles would be, if you had to load up 70 pounds of your back, and you're going to try to make it from probably here to, what, Chick-fil-A maybe? About there? Ballpark? Maybe not quite that far, but somewhere in that, in that neighborhood? That's a lot of ground to cover with 70 pounds. And you set off early in the morning, you're going to get there. Let's keep reading. I'm going to lose my battery and all my notes in a little bit. Yikes. Um, says, uh, David left the things. Uh, I forgot to read that. says, he reached the camp as the army was going out to battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of the supplies. He ran to the battle lines and greeted his brothers. Uh, just imagine David has got he's, he's probably tired but he's like getting a second wind right now goosebumps on edge you know here's this you know older teenage kid we'll find out here in a second like dude he can hear all the, the noise the ruckus the rattle of battle everybody's forming their lines they've done the same thing for 40 days Israel gets up they drop their battle lines and they have to because the, the Philistines are drawing their battle lines. So they got a counter. Okay, what if they charge over today? They get their lines ready. David's like, yes! Runs up, greets his brothers, and this does not go well. Uh, it says, as he was talking to him, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines, and he shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. Whew. Whew. Just running from him. Scared out of their ever-loving minds. Now the Israelites had been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He'll also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his father's family from taxes in Israel. 
I kind of wonder like how this negotiation takes place. And what if it starts off with, I'm gonna give I'll give you a lot of money if you can kill him. And a few days go by. I'm gonna give you a lot of money and I'll give you my daughter. Days roll by. Alright, I'm gonna give you a lot of do- a lot of money, I'll give you my daughter, and your entire family is exempt from taxes. And all of a sudden the, I just I picture Saul keeps raising the ante. Like, what's next? It just keeps going up. But evidently still not got a man that's willing to do it. David asked the man standing near him, what will be done to the, to the man who kills the Philistines and removes this disgrace from Israel? <laughs> who is this uncircumcised Philistine that it should defy the armies of the living God? Woo! That armies of the living God is going to come out big time. Now understand, you're a grown man with a bunch of other grown men. And some teenager showed up and he's just running his mouth. A little teenager running his mouth. Just talking. Maybe you've heard the story of the bear. You've heard the story of the lion. You know who David is. Yeah, his brothers have told you the story. Sometimes he's sitting in the trench. Yeah, my stupid little brother killed a lion the other day. Yeah, I killed a bear too. You know, yeah, yeah. Or like, hey, aren't you the guy who the little brother killed the bear? Yeah, that's me. That's me. David shows up. Here he is. And he's just talking. Just talking. And it says, they repeated to him what had been saying, what had been told to him. This will be what, what, what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speak with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? He's just calling him out. Big brother being a punk right now. And he says, I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. I always wondered why he said that. I wonder why he says that. It's always intriguing. And why the writer puts it down there. He says, You came only to watch the battle. It's probably probably some reason why David gets up so early. You know, he probably is excited to get out there. He probably is wanting to watch the battle. He probably is wanting to get involved in a little bit. But it's tense. It's a tense with Big Brother. And, uh, and man, it, this feels a little bit like Joseph and his brothers right now, where the favorite brother stays back. It's just the condescending nature. Yeah, you take care of those few sheep out in the desert. You know, what are you doing? It's... He's, just, he's accusing David of gawking, like we drive by a car wreck. Oh, what are you here? You watch people get killed? Is that what you hear? Just calls him out. David says, what have I done? Oh, man. Oh. Some of you guys have grown up with siblings. No, you can almost hear the little brother or little sister in your life saying that. What did I do? It's, David sounds like a whiner there. I don't think he is. David says, what have I done? Can I even speak? And then he turned away to someone else, which you know how to tick off his brother. Just had to tick his brother off. Turned his back on him, and he brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. So what you need to realize is that there's a lot of chatter going on. Talk, 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 talk. It's buzzing all over the place. And, uh, you know, they've been waiting for 40 days for somebody to fight him. And all of a sudden, word gets back to Saul. Hey, we got somebody who wants to fight him. You know, we get somebody that's asking lots of questions. So uh, David said to Saul, he says, let no one lose heart on the account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Whew. Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy. And he's been a fighting man from his youth. Okay, keep in mind, we sing these songs like, only a boy named David. You know, The image that we were given you know, on the flannel graph, the image we've seen of the precious moments, those are not right. David's an older teenager. When he says, you're only a boy... Hebrew means later teen years. He's probably 16, 17, 18, 19 years old at this point. Okay, he's, he's, no, he's no little kid. And, and man, I know I work with students all the time. 
I, I get kids that show up at our event that look like grown men. Okay? Now we do know this. He's not big like Saul. He's not tall like Saul. We know that he's ruddy. You know, he's small. He's not, he's not like massive. There's nothing about him that makes you look at him and go, Woo, look how, look how tall and powerful he is. You know, Saul's basically saying, Dude, you can't do this. This guy's been fighting since his youth. He's been fighting his whole life. Um, but David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. And when a lion or bear carried off the sheep and the flock, I went after it, I struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. And when it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Uh, Josephus writes that when he kills the lion, uh, Josephus says that the church history or, or uh, Hebrew history would say he grabbed the lion's tail and slammed it to the ground. Now, we don't know how big the lion was. We don't know any of that story. I'm going to assume that everything he does in that moment is absolute God moment of God showing up. The same way he shows up in Samson's life, he shows up in David's life. Uh, but again, I, I, we don't know how big this lion is. We don't know what it does. We know that, that no one disputes the fact this happened, not even Saul. You know, the story's out there. Everybody knows, oh yeah, David killed a lion. And, you know, that lion probably just well would have killed him as a sheep. Uh, he goes on, he says, uh, he says, your servant killed both the lion and the bear. And again, he does. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. He just looks at Goliath like a big beast. And his attitude is, dude, bring it. Bring it. He's like, he's just a big beast. I'll fight him. Not afraid. Just another beast. All right, let's talk about David for a second before we get into this. Uh, the, the, the meat of this whole fight. Told you guys last week about those uh, Maasai boys that you see out there. When David is out there in that wilderness, you know, it talks about, was it... Uh, I think it was the Benjamites in, in Judges, that they were so good with a slingshot, they could knock a hair off your head. Um, when I was a kid, I, I've still got it in my closet. It's still there. Uh, weird thing I've got in there. Uh, it was given to me by a guy that lived with us like two or three years. He was an Ozark guy from Australia. Long story is my dad found out he was sleeping in somebody's barn and taking a bath with a, a hose. Uh, because he couldn't live on campus. My dad's like, come live with us. So this guy moved in with us. And uh, great guy. And one of his parting gifts to me is that he loved to ride horses and work cattle. He'd earn money different ways. He gave me this bull whip. And uh, one, I was like, to me, as a junior high kid, one of the coolest gifts I could ever get in my life was I got this bull whip. Still sits in my closet. It's in there. Won't ever use it again, but it's awesome. And, uh, and so I would literally walk out every day, and I had nothing to do. I, my brothers are grown and gone. I'm in junior high now. You know, my mom's working. My dad's working. I got way too much time in the woods by myself. So I would literally walk around by myself. My dad, you know, he'd tell me to mow the yard. I'd wait until an hour before he came home, put the lawnmower in the fastest mode it possibly mow, drive around like a maniac, power slide it in before he got home because the rest of the day all I'd done was mess around with that stupid bullwhip. That's all I ever did. And literally it got to the point where my buddies could look at it and I could say, pick any like a whole cluster of leaves would be there. I'd say, pick one. Tell me which one it is. And they would pick it. And I could literally take that whip and just go, pop. And I'd say, take off the left side, the right side, or the bottom. Or do you want to take off just at the stem and leave the leaf alone? And they're like, what? And I literally, I could take that thing and just pop and just take off the stem of the leaf and the leaf would be fine. Knock off the bottom. I had nothing else to do. I'm living in the country by myself. All I got is a stupid bull whip. When you're looking at David in a minute, we, we get into the story here with that slingshot. you got to understand, that's his toy. It, it's his weapon, but it's also his toy. 
It's what he's, it's what he's going to mess with. In the same way that guys today might mess with a bow, or maybe you like to shoot pistols or shotguns, and yes, it's a weapon, but it's also fun. You just enjoy doing it. It's just part of it. And ladies like that thing as well. This was fun for David. He's out there. He's got stupid sheep. He could use that thing to herd sheep. He didn't have like some sheep dog. Bam! Pop that sheep. Bam! Knock it. Silly. Walk over there. Bring it back in. You know, he could hit anything. For him to knock a bird. For him to kill a rabbit. This guy had for years out there by himself. For years they've left him out there alone. Years and years. He's had nothing else to do but jack around with a slingshot and a staff. That's it. Over and 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 over. Thousands upon thousands of shots. It's equivalent of anybody here, like you pitched baseball, pitched softball. Anybody here, any pitchers in here? What you pitched? Question for you. As a pitcher, was it hard for you to hit a catcher's glove? Not too hard, was it? And a good pitcher? I mean, a good pitcher? They can put that about wherever they want to put that ball. And a lot of, not all the times, but a lot of times when somebody gets hit, it's because they meant to do it. Not every time. I know the ball slips occasionally. But a lot of times if they pitch that inside and somebody's jumping out of the batter's box, that, that was on purpose. They're trying to push you back. You know, it's just part of the game. If you want to throw low, you throw low. Throw high, throw high. You want to throw a strike, you throw a strike. You know, I was talking to a girl that was uh, playing D1 softball when I was teaching this one time. I said, I have a question for you. Do you... Is it hard for you to throw a strike? And she just laughed. And she's like, no. No. I was like, could you throw one pretty much? She was every time. Every time. She was like, maybe once in a hundred. Like, I can't hit that. She goes, she goes there's all kinds. I'm putting spin on the ball. I'm doing all kinds of things. I'm doing a ton of different stuff to that ball. She goes, but if you just went through a strike and hit a glove, she goes, that's nothing for me. I just want you to realize, before we get into the meat of this, when he says, I can take him down, David believed it. I don't think he's like, oh, I don't know. I'm not real sure. He's like, did you see the size of his cranium? You know? <laughs> Quoting, so I married an axe murderer. You know, it's like an orange on a toothpick. I mean, it's just like, it's massive. Look at the size of his head, you know? It's just good. Yeah, Sputnik. <laughs> I love that line. It's like, look at the size of that thing. I mean, I hear rabbits. I squirrels smaller than that. Like, I knocked bugs out of the air for crying out loud. You would hit that? It's massive. I can hit that all day long. Keep reading, sorry. And it keeps calling the uncircumcised thing, and it's not just calling out, oh, I just lost all my battery. This is about to get real fun. Now I've got to do all this from memory. It's not just him calling out male genitalia. You've got to understand, the whole issue of circumcision, that's covenant talk. He's like, dude, he's not even part of the covenant. He's not even one of us. He's not, even, he's not even with God. I'll fight him. Let's go. So here we go. Um, said, The Lord delivered me from the paw of the lion, and the paw of the bear would deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, uh, Go, and the Lord will be with you. And Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put the coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his hand. David fastened the sword over his tunic and tried walking around because he could not get used to them. Now keep in mind, David also, we know from chapter 16, was one of Saul's armor bearers. It's not the first time that he's ever been around this armor. Out of respect, it might be the first time he's ever tried it on. He made it out of respect for the king. He said, I, I've never actually, never actually put it on. I've just carried it around for him or shined it for him. But this time he puts it on. Um, keep in mind, it's, it's not that David's like this little boy and he's you know, flapping around because the clothes are too big. Saul's a big man. You know, it's, it, it's kind of like, you know, yeah, i got a sophomore son, but asking to wear my large shirts, they're just not going to fit him. 
It's not because he's disproportionate or I'm disproportionate. My clothes just don't fit Levi. I think that's what you've got here. Don't make more of it than, than what it is. But I think it is important that David doesn't try to use Saul's armor to fight God's battle. And, and I think there's a lesson in there for all of us because sometimes we want to use what works for somebody else to fight our, our spiritual battles. And man, I think there's a lesson in there. Great lesson in there. Just because it works for somebody else doesn't mean it's going to work for us. And, uh, and God calls us to fight uh, with His power on His terms, not on somebody else's terms. So he goes on. It says, uh, I can't go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. He says, I took him off, and he took a staff in his hand. He chose five smooth stones from the stream. A lot of people say this because uh, Goliath had four brothers. Maybe, but there's nothing in the text that even mentions his brothers were there. They might have been, just like David's brothers were there. We don't know. We don't know. Um, but he did. You know, Goliath did have four other brothers, so that's part of the preachers love to talk about. He took one for each one of his brothers. I think he took one just a lot. Maybe I might miss. But I should take an extra. All right, these stones that he grabs... Um, trying to explain how big they are. They're probably uh, about half the size as a baseball, close to like a tennis ball size in that range. They're not little bitty rocks. Okay, I'm trying to think what's... Probably, we'll just go with a tennis ball. Probably a little bit smaller than a tennis ball. What's... Racquetball, perfect. That'd be great. We'll use a racquetball. Probably about the size of a racquetball. And uh, if you've seen, you know, if you've been out and about, you've seen water. We're in a valley, so there's been massive water that's rushed through here. These stones have rolled over and over over time. They're probably, he probably picks out five smooth stones, five round ones. And he's looking at aerodynamics. You know, he understands. He's done this. If you've ever been to the river skipping rocks and you've watched the, you skip it wrong and the rock flares off to the right or the left, you understand that. David probably carefully picks, those will fly straight. And he's got a satchel that he carries, but a shepherd's satchel that he would add. Slips those five rocks down into there. Keep reading. Um, uh, where are we at here? He says, um, put in the, in the shepherd's bag, and with the sling in hand, he approached the Philistine. All right, other thing. When we picture slings, a lot of, we're thinking of a slingshot, like the, the kinds that we're given. A little wooden handle, pull back, like, no, that's not what this is. Or not even the kind, like the cross when it goes over to your arm, you know, you pull back. You know, one of the most fun gifts I got as a kid was get my, I got a whole bunch of ball bearings one time, and I had one of those slingshots, and I mean, I shot things I shouldn't have shot. We'll just leave it at that. But what David's got is it would have been a long leather strap that he would have just, it would have just whipped over his head and, uh, or whipped beside him, and it would have been moving, moving fast. When that rock comes out, it's moving about 90 miles an hour, Okay. So you get a picture, a rock the size of a racquetball coming at your cranium at 90 miles an hour. And he saddled down with a bronze helmet, 125 pounds of bronze armor holding this thing. I don't think David understands what he's... I mean, Saul, Goliath understands what he's up against. Let's keep going. says, meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield, uh, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he's only a boy, ruddy and handsome. But again, like, guys, over and over. And he despised him. He said to David, I, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? But David probably still had his, his staff in his hand. You know, he's probably not even noticing. I don't know if David's hiding the slingshot. I don't know if David's got a shepherd's patch, pouch and not, not, not showing what he's got. You know, maybe he just kind of walks up there. 
He watches Saul. Uh, Saul. He watches Goliath start you know, inching his way up, getting a little bit closer. And all of a sudden, he's just walking up with a staff. Like, I'm going to fight you. You a dog? You come, am I a dog? You come here with sticks? And he says, uh, he says, come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. That's some serious smack talk right there. And this is a big, booming voice. Whole army of Israel is listening to this. All the Philistines are... This is the first guy in 40 years that's even ventured to leave the front lines. First one that's walked out. And you can imagine, Israelites, I don't know what posture they're in. I think right now, they're probably all standing up on the edge of where they've dug in, and they're just watching this on their tiptoes. Like, okay. David goes down towards the edge of the ravine. He picks up his five stones. Saul starts this booming voice like, dude, I'm going to cut your head off and let the birds and beasts eat you. You're a dead man. He has no mercy for this kid. It's not like he looks at him and he's like, oh, he's just a kid. No, Saul's like, you want some boy? You're going to get yours and more. And, uh, and what, what I see Saul, I mean Goliath. What Goliath does there is he, he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna gut this kid with no mercy. No mercy. And so when he calls him out, he means it. Going on, it says this, David said to the Philistine, so imagine this, I just wonder what David says. I mean, I know what he says, I wonder what the tone sounds like. He says this, he says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord God Almighty. Here we go. First time in Scripture that that name ever gets revealed. You read it as Lord God Almighty, that's not what he said. This is where our English language and our English writing really screws up the text and we don't get the power of what he says. He screams out. I mean, just yells at him. He says, you come against me with sword and javelin and spear. I come against you in the name of Jehovah Sabaoth. Bring it. I come against you in the name of Jehovah Sabaoth. And I think David just screams it at him. Goliath looks at him, Jehovah Sabaoth. First time you ever hear that name mentioned in the Bible. It's a name that God gives himself. And what it means is, it, it really, if I could translate in a way to make sense today, I come in the name of the, in, in the, name of the of God of the armies you cannot see. He's not talking about these scaredy cats behind him. David says, I've got a whole army backing me up and you can't even see them. You don't even know what you're up against. You've got no clue. You've got no clue who's got my back right now. And David's just like, bring it. You want to fight me? You're not just taking on me. You're taking me and my God and every angel and every power that he has. And in that moment, he says, you want to come against me with your weapons of war? You want to come against me with that stuff? And that's when I look at it and say, we don't fight battles of flesh and blood, but against rules and principalities. And when you look at the spiritual armor that God gives us, this is not a flesh and blood battle we fight. And David looks at it and goes, Goliath, you're not fighting flesh and blood. You think you're fighting some teenager? Dude, you want to pick a fight? You uncircumcised, uncovered piece of junk. You want to fight me? Get ready to fight Jehovah Sabaoth. I'm going to kick your face. He says, let's go. Let's get it on right now. And I think when he says that, ooh, it is on. And the blood is rushing to David. His energy is up. God's anointing is on him. The Spirit is on him. And it says, this day... He just calls out smack. This day the Lord will hand you over to me and I'll strike you down and I'll cut off your head. Today I'll give the carcasses of the entire Philistine. He just wants to give David's body to the beast. David's like, 
Screw that. I'm going to get the old Philistine army fighting the beast. You know, that wouldn't be enough. And he says, the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, the whole world will know there's a God in Israel. And those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's and He will give all of you, all of you into our hands. I love it. Philistine just wants David. David says, I want all of you. I'm going to kill you all. Let's go. And he screams and charges at Goliath on behalf of Jehovah Sabaoth. To me, there's this moment for us to step back spiritually. Do we still believe that Jehovah Sabaoth fights on our behalf? Do we still believe when we face opposition that we can look that opposition in the eye? Even when our enemy comes against us. And I understand we want to resist temptation. I understand fleeing the devil. But I also believe there's a a chance. If you understand, you've heard the illustration. None of the spiritual armor from from the breastplate of righteousness, your feet shot, helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit, all the things we're given, none of those, none of those weapons of spiritual warfare, there's nothing given for your back so you would turn and run. Everything you're given as spiritual armor is given for an attack posture. And sometimes I look at it and I wonder, man, why do we back down so often? Why are we so utterly afraid? It reminds me a lot of times, i got to watch this because I'm going to start getting excited. Uh, I forgot to look at this text before I came in today. I'm going to take a minute and find this. It's in Exodus. Jesus, help me recall. I'm going to try Exodus 13. I don't even know if that's right. Turn to Exodus 13. Let's hope, I'm, let's hope I guessed because that's all that is right now. And no, that isn't. Uh, that might be. Yeah, it is. Thank you, Jesus. I think it reminds me a lot of a lot, we, we can be a lot like the Israelites when they leave. We've talked about this before, but now is a great time to talk about it again. When do they leave Egypt? If you remember the story, what they do when they leave Egypt, is that God, God makes the Egyptians look favorably on the Israelites as they're getting ready to leave, Israel, I mean, leave Egypt. And literally, the scripture says that they plundered the Egyptians. Plundered it. They plundered them. They walked out, and we get this idea, like they walked out with hobos, little sticks, and they're just poor and impoverished. They're poor and impoverished one minute, and the next minute they're loaded. Everything. Every spiritual blessing was pounded on them. Every, everything they needed for the next journey they were going on, the, Israel, the Egyptians just handed it over. You know, like, they're just, here, take this, take this, take this. The Israelites are like, I got enough! I mean, they got silver, gold, and weapons. Watch this. Why do the Israelites have to wander in the wilderness? Why do they have to take that journey? Chapter 13, verse 17. It says, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through Philistine country, though that way was shorter. There was a direct line to the promised land from Egypt. I mean, we know where Egypt was. We know where the promised land is. It's not that far. It doesn't take 40-some years to get there. It's not, it's, I mean, it's, it's a distance, but there's a, there's a path you can take to get there. There's a shortcut that they could have taken. There's a path they could have gone on. And there was a shorter route for the children of Israel. He says, He did not leave them for the country, though that way was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. Check the next line. The Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. You see it. They're armed to fight, but they're cowards. So God won't lead them on the shortcut. I can take you guys right where you want to be. 
I could lead you right where we need to go. But I know if I do, I've given you swords, and they're content for 40-some years to play stick warfare by themselves, messing around out in the desert. They wander for 40 years, doing nothing with their swords of any significance. And sometimes I wonder if God looks at us and says, I've given you a spiritual armor. I've given everything you need to transform this world. And we want to look at it like, we got the armor of God. And God's like, yeah, you do. Use it. Do something with it. I'd love to lead you on a shortcut right into enemy territory. And knowing that I'll provide a way. Knowing that I'll guide you. And maybe he'll bail you out like he did Jonathan. And maybe he won't. But sometimes God looks at it and says, I've given you everything you need. Everything you need has been provided. Go fight. And we wonder why most of our churches and why most of us live our lives. And at some point, they're going to put us all six foot under, like I said last week. And we're going to eat, they're going to go eat potato salad and chicken. And your days are done and my days are done. Do we really want to lead a coward's life? Or do we want to cry out, Jehovah Sabaoth fights on my behalf. Jehovah Sabaoth fights on my behalf. God is my defender. There's nothing I'm going to fear. What can man do to me? Hebrews says, we're not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. That's not who we are. Timothy says, we're not given a spirit of timidity, but want a power, love, and a sound mind. And in this moment, all of Israel, they remain Saul's army. Only David says he's a part of the Lord's army. Only David cries out to God. And sometimes if we get this perspective that absolutely paralyzes us in the midst of an enemy, absolutely paralyzes in the face of opposition. The Lord says, you don't have to have fancy tools. Just take what I gave you and fight. I got your back. And even if you don't, even if he doesn't bail you out, even if, if you die for crying out loud, then I would cry out to what 2 Corinthians 5 says. If the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God. If the earthly tent, temporary, things temporary, if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building not a tent, a building from God, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan because we long to be clothed with a heavenly dwelling. He finishes that out by saying, man, as long as we're here, you know, on earth, you know, away from the Lord. I guess I would look at us and say, what could God do even today with a man or a woman who is so wholly committed to Him that you still believe is Jehovah Sabaoth and He fights with the armies of heaven on your behalf? That's a beautiful thought. Sorry, I told you to get wound up, and we haven't even got there yet. I'm going to get wound up with something else in a second. I love that Jehovah Sabbath. He says, This day the Lord will hand you over. Read all that. He says, uh, verse uh, 48, As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly. We first read that, you're thinking, Yikes! Runs the opposite way, but not David. I think David's just like, Let's go. He just charges him. He's like, I'm not going to let you come to me. You know, I'm going to you. I'm going to you. You're not coming to fight. You're not coming to you know fight me. I'm going to fight you. This is the Lord's army. This is the Lord's victory. Jehovah Sabaoth has got my back. You're a dead man. You're a dead man. So he goes on. He says, reach into his bag, taking out a stone. He slung it and he struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. You can imagine that armor bearer's like, all right, here we go, let's get it on. Armor bearer's sitting next to Goliath. Here comes a little kid with a stick. All of a sudden, he pulls out the slingshot. I don't know how fast it comes out. I don't know Saul's making his way down, you know, trying to get down in the valley. And he just kind of looks up. I don't know how this plays out. But at some point, David's just running. Boom, lets that thing fly. 
And I think he knew all along, dude, it was like a big old bullseye. Big old fat cranium. I think David had no doubt, I'm going I'm to bust his head open like a melon. Now David, I hit this all day long like a pitcher hitting a, hitting, a, hitting a glove. By the time he gets up that big old javelin, tries to hurl that thing at me, 15-pound javelin. I'm going I'm to dodge the thing for crying out loud. I see it coming a mile away. David's just like, foo, 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 bam, lets that thing go, flies through the air, crack, hits him right in the head. you got to keep in mind, the Philistine army is watching Goliath's back. All of a sudden, like, did it hit him? Oh, God, he just got his helmet. He's good. You know, it's like, timber. Woo, bam, falls face down. Cannot imagine what that armor bearer did as David starts reaching back into the bag again. Armor bearer's just gone, just takes off running. Philistines are in turmoil. I love that visual. Just whoop, hits the ground. I can't imagine how loud that was. And can you imagine that split second of silence? The split second. He goes down. Body just drops. Envision it. Let the movie play out in your own mind. Picture the Philistines first. What do they do? Their champion. The baddest guy they've got just hit the ground. There's this moment of, oh, crud. What? Oh, no. They go in complete, I mean, there's just like, run. And in that same moment, you got the Israelites over here watching David. I imagine one of his brothers like, "Uh uh-oh. Dude, I remember the time he hit me with that rock. He's good with that thing. And they're like, oh, I know what he's going to do. And one of his brothers surely is like, oh, this is going to be bad. Boom! Drops that big old guy. And all of a sudden, Israel's just like, quiet. We tell the stories in our lives of people who take great risk. Those are the stories we tell. We tell the stories of people who take risk. People who put themselves out there. And I'm not saying you got to go kill Goliath tomorrow. And in fact, I would say we should probably identify more with the children of with the army of Israel than we do with, with David. I think the late, David is a great type of Jesus, slaying, destroying sin, destroying Satan. But because of that, the power that the Israelite army feels when they recognize victory transforms their army. When they realize we've won. That enemy has been defeated. It says that God, you know, he talks about him being dressed in scales. And you can remember this early story that's told, you know, to Adam and to Eve. That, you know, that, that you're, you know, talking about the serpent. That, you know, your heel is going to crush him. You know, you're going to cut off his head, basically. You know, we hear that the God of, of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. And in this moment... Here is David chopping down this this mammoth man of scales, dropping this snake straight to the ground, dropping this python flat to his face. And all of a sudden, when they realize that that enemy has been defeated, look what it does to the army. We'll keep reading. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout, and they pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath all the way to the entrance of Gath, to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn around the Serum Road to Gath and Ekron. Here's the, the quick lesson, a quick takeaway that I would give us to, to keep in mind. I think something beautiful for us, for us to learn. When we understand the power of victory, it gives us courage. It gets us out of our trenches. It gets us out of our place of fear. And I would encourage us to step back and say, is the victory that Jesus had over death 
Is it greater than David's victory over Goliath? Then why wouldn't we surge forth in battle? Why wouldn't we surge forth in, in triumph? Why do we keep living as a defeated people? At some point, there had to be one or two Israelites. Somebody starts that shout. Somebody starts that surge. Somebody takes that step. Everybody else is in fear. And sometimes all it takes is two, three, four people to go, Raw charge! And then all of a sudden, the entire army goes. And in that moment, you can see. And I'm saying that, man, the gates of hell can't stand against us. This church cannot be defeated. And if they can feel that much power from the death of a giant, from a boy in a slingshot, how much more, church, can we not feel the power of what Jesus did when He conquered the greatest enemy, the greatest giant of all, being death and sin, rose from the dead, rolled back the stone on our behalf, and lives to stand to fight as Jehovah Sabaoth on our behalf. Man, we are more than conquerors. Look at Romans 8. We, got, we can't just talk about it. We've got to read it. Mark's going to talk about it. We've got to look at it. He says, And don't we know, verse 28, that all these things God works for the good, those who love Him and called according to His purpose. He moves on to verse 37. He says, Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will separate us from from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What's the worst thing this world can do to you? Take away your birthday and Christmas? What are you going to do? They're going to bury you? You have eternity at hand. And at some point, you've got a finite amount of time to live in this world. Why not live it? Why not live it with adventure? Live it with gusto? Live it taking risk? Knowing that Jehovah Sabaoth fights on your behalf. It's a lot better. Nobody wants to die saying, man, I read it. I lived a really boring, safe life. Nobody wants that. Do something bold for the kingdom. Take a risk and put yourself out there. You know, and maybe God will act to your behalf. And if He doesn't and you die, guess what? You get to spend eternity with Him. And that's a good thing. That's a real good thing. And that's my reminder every day when I walk in my office and my coffin's sitting there. Every day I go to work, there's my coffin. I think about it every day. I'm going to be in that thing someday. <laughs> going in it, man. It sits there every day. <sighs> Better do something smart. Do something today that matters. Don't just sit here. You know, get off your butt and do something. Your days are short. Do I make any decision today that I'll look back and go, man, that could have some sort of eternal significance. Or did I just say it was a long day at work today? And, and, and part of my attitude is, if it's a long day at work, man, that's part of it. That's part of living in a fallen world on this side of Genesis. I get it. But at the same time, I, I want to enter, my preference is to enter into, into eternity, huffing and puffing, worn out, and looking at Jesus going, whew, that was a great ride. That's fun. And he's, come on in. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. I want to need rest. I want to need rest. I don't want to live a life like that. I want to get there going, yeah, I need it, man. He's like, yeah, you do. Come on in. Come on in. i got food over here. There's all kinds of stuff. Welcome home. I've been waiting for this. been waiting for this. Enter into your rest because you need, you need some rest right now. That's how I want to live my life. I don't want to be like the Israelites who just sit on the sidelines waiting for fight. I want to be a bit more like David and go pick one. So let's keep moving on. I told you I get wound up. I'm sorry. <clears throat> it says when the Philist- oh, I already read all that. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? Now, I noticed something that I hadn't noticed before. At first time I read that, I thought Saul didn't know who David was. But then I looked at it objectively. I was like, wait a second. Whose son 
is that young man. He doesn't ask, who is that young man? He asks, whose son is that young man? Why does Saul ask that question? He got a tax liability. Exactly. It's like, ah, oh, crud, man. So the whole family's, with the whole, all the, the entire family would now be tax free. He's like, all right, better write that down. What's, that, what's his dad's name? Abner says, Abner's going to be a big deal later on. He says, as sure as you live, O king, I don't know. The king said, find out whose son this young man is. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took and brought him before Saul um, while, while, while David was still holding the Philistine's head. Ah, uh, I missed a part. Ah, uh, I missed the most important verse. We gotta, I'm going to finish reading that and then I'm going to end with the part that matters most to me. And we're going to talk about it. He says, David returned. He says, whose son are you, young man? Saul asked. David says, I'm the son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem. Now, let's go back to probably what is my favorite verse in all of this. And, and this is probably the part I love the most. He says, when the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. David took, verse 54, the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem, and he put the Philistines' weapons in his own tent. Alright, this is a long way from Jerusalem. It's not real close. I think I, gotta, I need to go through and calculate it. Somebody else might listen to the podcast. You might look it up. And I don't want to mix up my stories. It might be as much as 30 miles. Okay? It's a heavy head. He's already carried a 7 pound back. You know, he's going to leave the cheese and, wheat, cheese and grain behind. He's got a head with him now. Okay, now we need to let this be as gruesome as it is. He's chopped off this massive giant's head. You got the facial expression on this giant, the weird look on his face. You know, you got a stone sunk into his head. I'm sure David doesn't want to carry that, so he probably digs out the stone. You got, he lops his head off, probably a pretty clean cut. He's a good soldier, and whoo, cuts off his head. In my mind's eye, I picture him grabbing the head by, uh, by the hair and going for a walk. What's he do with the head? Verse 54. What's he do with the head? To me, this is the most miraculous part and most amazing part of the story. He takes the head to Jerusalem. Why would you take the head to Jerusalem? Why would you take it to Jerusalem? Just throw out one answer. Yeah, show the people. Brag. Trophy. You know what I mean? Okay. I don't want to just say it. say it. I want you to find it with me. Okay? Oh, Jesus, help me remember where this verse is too. I know it's at the very end of Judges. Turn to the very end of Judges. We've not seen the name Jerusalem in this book yet. I think this is the first time. It might be one other time early on. But this is one of the first times we're going to see it. Okay? One of the first times we'll, we'll see this name Jerusalem. This is really, really important. Um, let's go back to ver- chapter 19. Got it? Chapter 19 of Judges. Verse 11. When they were near Jabus, and the day was almost gone, the servant said to his master, Come, let's stop at this city of the Jebusites and spend the night. Jabus is Jerusalem. Same city. Same, same. Let me read it again. 
We've not seen the name Jerusalem. I think it might mention one other time. I'm, I, there is one other time, but it's, it's an abstract statement. One of the last times you really see this city mentioned is in Judges, when he says, When they near Jabus, but Jabus was gone, the servant said to his master, Come, let's stay uh, in, this, in the city of the Jebusites and spend the night. He says, Now we won't go to this alien city whose people are not Israelites. We'll go on to Gibeah, which is that whole funny story about Saul being from Gibeah, which is a tragic story that plays out in there. They can't stay in Jabus, which is Jerusalem. They can't stay in that city because it's not safe. Okay, so what does that tell you? Jerusalem is what? Jerusalem's not their city. It's not even so much that it's captured, it hasn't even been captured yet. Jerusalem's not their town. Think about it, play it out in your mind. You're David. You just cut off the head of a giant. You're walking mile after mile after mile. You know, you know you're going to be king someday. You're out there for hours on end with your slingshot. Slinging up birds. Slinging up rabbits. Slinging at field mice. Whatever it is. You've been anointed with oil by the prophet. And you're never going to be king. You think that's not running through your head when you're out there? You think that thought's not circulating over and over? When I'm king. When I become king. Over and over and over I think he thinks about it. It's 12 years from the time. I'm pretty sure I've got to run my numbers on this. I think it's about 12 years from the time that David hears he's going to be king until he actually becomes king. He's been out there for a while. Time. And all of a sudden, he cuts off the head of a giant and he goes straight to Jerusalem with the head of a giant. He shows up outside the walls. He looks up with the head in his hand and basically pulls that Schwarzenegger moment and says, boom, I'll be back. That's my city. That's my city. David's laying claim to Jerusalem in that moment. He's saying, you guys can have a giant. You guys can have a little army. I want a nation. I want an entire nation. And the first thing I'll get is I'll get a city where I can rule from. And I choose Jerusalem. You know the first thing that David does when he becomes king? Remember this is First Chronicles chapter eleven. Turn your Bibles there. First Chronicles chapter eleven. If you got that, watch this. Chapter eleven. The heading of that says David becomes king over Israel. First Chronicles chapter eleven. Skip down to the heading above verse four. And what does it say? David conquers Jerusalem. To me, that is utterly amazing. When he takes the head of that giant, he walks up and he says, this is my city. This is where I will rule. This is where I will establish my kingdom. And to this day, to this very day, what do they call Jerusalem? The city of David. When he chops off that giant's head, he says, you plunder this stuff around here. You take the piddly stuff in the tents. You can chase and kill them all the way there. I got business to tend to. And the army goes one way toward the north. David goes the exact opposite way towards Jerusalem. Because he doesn't care about a little army. He doesn't care about the little stuff in tents. He'll give the sword later on to a priest. He says, what I want is the head. And he takes the head. He stands outside the wall. He looks up at the Jebusites. And he says, basically, this is my town and I'll be back. This is my city. 
Can you imagine standing on that wall? They've not got press releases. Nobody's tweeted yet that he killed Goliath. There's nothing coming out like the evening news. Have you heard? No one's gotten to the battle lines there. David shows up, and all of a sudden, there's all the Jebusites looking over the wall. Hey, who's that guy? I don't know. What's he got in his hand? Dude, that guy looks familiar. Who is that? Hey, he's got a dead guy's head. That's a big head. It is a really big head. Who's big head? Oh, my word. He's got Goliath's cranium. He's holding Goliath's head. And he's just standing there looking up at him. And in my mind, I think he just drops a head and walks off. That's how I like to picture it. Because that's how I do the movie. I don't know how it plays out. I don't know for sure. But I look at David basically saying, I'm going to need a city to rule from. I just chose this one. And it's a crazy story of how he conquers Jerusalem. They say you'll never get in here. He gets in, takes over the city, and he rules from that city. To me, that's the beauty of it. I think killing Goliath was not nearly as hard as we make it out to be. I think the amazing thing is that small little verse in there when he says, and he took the head of Goliath to Jerusalem. He's setting the standard. This is a new reign. It's coming my way. This will be my city. And you think about what that city means. That city of David where he'll establish his reign. You think about what gets established for us in terms of a new Jerusalem where a king conquers A king rules. A king establishes on our behalf. Everything that David does, he becomes a type of who Jesus is. He defeats the enemy. He stands at the gates of hell and destroys it. And he says, I'm building a new city on your behalf. Come live here. He knew his people needed a safe place to live. He knew he needed a place to reign from. And he provides this this banner of safety, a banner of love over his people. What a beautiful, great, amazing king. I love David. That at 17 or 18, he beats a giant. Okay, what I love even more is he doesn't just take a giant. He takes a kingdom. That's brazen. Brazen, brazen. Great story. All right, we are out of time. Hopefully you loved it. One of my favorite chapters. But still, next week we get into the whole thing. Actually, next week I think we're off over spring break, aren't we? I think we take off next week, don't we? We we take a turn next week. Uh, and, and there's really some cool things that happen in the, in the next couple of chapters because it gets into Saul's jealousy of David. Um, you know, and I, I think this killing of Goliath is part of why David and Jonathan get such an alignment. Jonathan's a lot older than David, but I think Jonathan on that day, he's pro- I'm sure he's there the day he kills Goliath. He's got to be there. And I imagine he's like, dude, kudos to you, man. I didn't go out there. You know, and Jonathan's a brave dude. He climbs up. Fights the guys. It's not like Jonathan's a coward or anything like that. And I think it's part of it's like, David, all right, you're my man. You got guts. And I think it's part of they've been they've been forged in battle and they forged in, in bravery, they forged in warfare. Uh, but next we're gonna get into how this jealousy uh, gets in between the next two chapters uh, between David and Saul, and it's toxic, it's dangerous, uh, and it's horrible. So hopefully, love that chapter. It's awesome. See you guys next week. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.